Monday morning of this week, I had the opportunity to travel down to Vancouver and participate in a gravesite service for a serviceman who had passed away back on December 7th, 1941. It was quite an honor. Got full of military um, honors there and uh, honor guard. It was it was moving. It was good. But as I was thinking about that experience, I couldn't help but think back to that fateful day in December 7th, 41. On a Sunday morning, and wondering how many people were spiritually ready for that day. Many lost their lives. Many never got up that morning expecting this will be the end of my life. And how it hit me was to think in terms of redeeming the time, taking advantage of this moment because I don't know what the future holds. But what if you knew what the future held for you? What if you would have insight to know that tomorrow you die? What would you do? How would you spend these moments, because they're going to be fleeting, how would you spend these moments up until that point when you passed away? We have such a situation recorded in Scripture. I invite you to turn again to our passage of this morning, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. It is from the life of Jesus, obviously. It is after a busy, busy week in Jerusalem, beginning with a triumphal entry earlier in the week. And now you know, because you know the story of Jesus, that he was headed to the cross. And what we encounter in this passage then is Jesus' response to the knowledge that he has Hours to live. And I invite you to look with me into, first of all, the setting in verses 1 through 5. Let me read those verses again for you. And then we'll talk about the lessons that we learn from Peter's feet, at Peter's feet. It says, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to his Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, 
rose from the supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And when he had poured water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I just want to point out a few uh, conclusions that we can gather out of this passage. First of all, Jesus knew what was about to happen, the whole cross, the whole death, the whole um, mockery of a trial, all those things, Jesus knew. In fact, the phrase is instructive Jesus knew that his hour had come. That ought to stand out at you. And I've given some cross-references here to show that that phrase is used in a different way throughout the life of Jesus. You can remember back in John chapter 2 and verse 4 when Jesus is at a wedding, came in Galilee, And his mother comes and said, would you do something about this? We've run out of wine. And it says in John 2, 4, when wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. Not time. In John chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus had been speaking and they sought to arrest him. And it says, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, and verse 20, Jesus was speaking in the treasury and teaching in the temple. And scripture says again, but no one arrested him. Why? His time had not yet come. But if we go back just one chapter in the Gospel of John to chapter 12 and verse 23, not a hard turn for you to find, we read these words. As Jesus has been talking, this is, John has recorded little of that week, but this is one thing that he did record. And Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies and remains alone, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul trouble. What can I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So John records in verse chapter 13, Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of the world. To depart out of the world to the Father. The scripture goes on 
to say that he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And literally, that means not this was coming to an end and all of that was coming to pass and it would be over. Jesus would die and of course that would cut off his love. No, what it means is he loved them to the fullest extent. He loved them to the fullest extent. There's some interesting things I don't know if you picked up on here where he talks about, he says, the hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father. Did you catch that? He didn't say, it is now time for the hour to come and I'm going to die. I mean, Jesus had talked about that before. But that isn't what is mentioned here. He says, I'm looking beyond what's going to happen with the mockery of the trial, with the taking of the, to the cross, the being dying on the cross and being buried in the grave. He says, I'm looking beyond that to the resurrection and then the ascension back to the, my father. He says, I see this whole thing all together. He says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He loved them to the fullest extent. Then we have this little aside here about Judas. During the supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God, was going back to God, did something. So we have three elements in here. First of all, Judas plan to betray Jesus is well known by Jesus. He knows there is an enemy at work and the enemy is working through one of his disciples to bring about this process that will end up with him being glorified back to the Father. But he, he recognizes for what it is. It's a betrayal. Scripture says that he loved his disciples to the fullest extent. But then it says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And you go, what an interesting little aside there. What does it tell us about Jesus? He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he was up to. And there was no doubt, no confusion in him. He, he knew perfectly those things that were coming to pass as we saw in chapter 12. He says, do I want to bypass this? No. <laughs> this is why I came. This is why I came. To go to the cross. So, with a statement like this, that he had come from God, was going back to God, what do you think the next thing he would do? You know who I am? I came from the Father. I'm headed back to the Father. That's who I am. Where's the bowl? 
Let me wash your feet. What? This is the Son of God here on earth about to enjoin the great purpose for which He came, which is a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And what does He do? He's looking around for a bowl and towel to wash His disciples' feet. And so we have this whole setup. All things were given to his hand. He had come from God. He was going back to God. And now he grabs a bowl and a towel and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Wow. This is another one of those shocking things in Scripture. Why would the God of the universe be working on his disciples' feet? Shouldn't it be the other way around? That's what Peter says. Peter, later on in this passage, go, Lord, I should be washing your feet. Not this way. In fact, normally they would wash their feet as they would come in off a dusty road. Having worn sandals, they would wash their own feet in preparation for being inside. We sort of mimic that today. What do we do? Kick off our shoes and walk around in the house without our shoes on so we don't track in what was out there into the house. If a family was wealthy, they may have the lowest servant on the totem pole the lowest servant to come and wash the, the feet of those who are guests in the household. It would never be the master of the house that would take on this task. It would never be the chief person in the room to take on this task. But what we see? The Son of God who is in the midst of bringing about salvation for the world from generation to generation is now washing his disciples' feet. And we learn some valuable, valuable lessons at the feet of Peter. Because, I'm so thankful for Peter, he just blurted out, you're not going to wash my feet. I realize the incongruity of the situation. This doesn't fit. My master shouldn't be washing my feet. That, no, you're not going to do it. We read this passage, and I'll read it again for you here, beginning in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or literally, you're not going to do that, are you? Jesus said, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Be careful to say never to God. He says, never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, and I'm so glad that Peter said those words, because we have some profound theology that is exposed while Jesus is washing 
Peter's feet. Listen to what he says. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter then said, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He goes, Peter, it is never easy with you. It's all or nothing, right? Literally. That's what Peter says, never. You're never going to do it. Oh, now do everything. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And if you are clean, you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And that harkens back to verse 2, where it says, during the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Jesus knew. And he says, not all of you. Let's draw some points out of this passage which teach us some great theology and you go, who would expect a great theological lesson with Jesus at at the feet of Simon claiming his feet This is not a place that we would turn for a great theology. And yet we get some profound theology. Jesus said when Simon says, don't wash me. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And I put down here, The only way to share in Jesus is to have Him clean us. He says, if I don't clean you, you have nothing to do with me. Does that mean that at one time, while Jesus was involved in public ministry, He took each one of His disciples aside and gave them a bath? No, He he has obviously moved to a spiritual arena here and is talking not so much about this bowl of water and some dirty feet. He is talking about their spiritual condition. And he says, if I don't clean you, you have nothing to do with me. And that's true. And more so than that, who has to do the cleaning? It is not us. It is Him. If He doesn't clean, I'm not clean. If He doesn't do the work, I'm not redeemed. And my mind goes off in weird directions as you already have known. And in Romans 3.23, we know the verse, for all have sinned and fall short of, what? The glory of God. Jesus had already been marked out in this passage here where he says he was ready to depart out of this world and go back to the Father. He had come from God. He was going back to God. He had experienced the glory of God because he lived there. He is God. He was returning back to that. Meanwhile, he'd been living here on earth 
And he says the problem in, in Romans, Paul writes, he says the problem is our sin has kept us from the glory of God. Later on in this same epistle, John is going to say in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, he says the glory that you have given me, talking to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus' goal and purpose was allow us to come into the very presence of God. That was his purpose. That's why I'm here. He says, should I escape from that? Should I avoid the cross? Satan had certainly tempted him to do that. Do that in the third temptation. He showed them all the kings of the world and said, I'll give all these to you if you just worship me. I will let them be obedient to you. They will follow you like puppy dogs. They will just come after you and it will all be good. And guess what? You don't even have to go to the cross. You don't have to die for them. You don't have to go through all this heartache and and torture, and pain, and death. All you have to do is just stop for a moment, worship me. We'll call it good. But Jesus knew that if that happened, we would live and die in our sin. We would never experience the glory of God. And his desire for us was to, as he said in the high priestly prayer, he says, I want them to have what we have. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks a little bit about that. And he says, He that was rich became poor so that we could become rich. He wasn't talking about money. God gave, God the Son gave up what he knew what it was like to be in full fellowship with the Father, and came to the perp- came to the cross when Jesus would say, "My God, My God, why has Thou forsaken me?" And He experienced what we experience—that sin separates us from God—and He took upon our sin and had a taste of that experience, not ever becoming sinful Himself, but experiencing. What sin does. Jesus, the only way. In fact, the whole picture of Simon, I mean of Judas Iscariot, is potent one too. Because mere association with Jesus will not get the job done. Here was a disciple who walked with the other disciples. They saw Jesus early in the morning, late at night. They saw him when he was in full splendor, proclaiming, performing miracles, doing those things. They saw him when he was dog-tired and and needing an escape to get away and get some rest. His disciples, Jesus said, To Peter, he says, no one who has bathed does not 
need to be washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. His disciples had come to the place of being completely clean, except one. He knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. The only way to share in Jesus is to have him clean us. To share in Jesus means to to be glorified, to experience that glory. Second point, we all need to be bathed. Jesus was washing their feet physically, yes, but he was talking about some spiritual truths here and he mentioned to Peter the idea of this foot washing was one thing, but being bathed is another one altogether. And this is the concept that we talk about in Scripture using a different term. And there's a lot of confusion between this term and our last term. This one is the word justified to be declared right in God's eyes. We all need to be justified, declared right in God's eyes. As we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ for our Savior, He also becomes our Lord. We're declared right. Is it on the basis of our performance? No, we can never do it. That's why we come back to the first one. We need to have Jesus clean us. No performance will ever give us to the place where we are ready to meet Him. No performance in our life, no holiness in our life that we can generate, which is a trick itself. I'm not sure how we could generate holiness. But if we could, it would be insufficient to come into the presence of God. There's another truth here, just sort of slips in and out of our notice. As Jesus is talking to Peter, he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You ever heard of the the concept of being eternally saved? There's a lot of questions for people. You know, if I get saved, is that for life? Is that... And the answer is, it better be. Jesus is the one who washed us. Jesus is the one who cleaned us. And he says, if you have been clean, because Peter said, don't wash my feet. And when Jesus said, I don't have any part with you. then Peter says, then wash me all over. And Jesus says, no need. Why? You're already clean. You're already clean. No need to take a bath again. You are, as he says, is completely clean. Well, why would you even need to wash feet then? Because there is another truth. Once bathed, the need for ongoing foot washing. Disciples, as they were going about their lives, walk on dusty streets, they come into the house, they may have had a bath. 
They come in the house and they look down and there's dust cleaning to their legs and their feet. And they need the feet washed. And Jesus makes the point here. He says, Anyone who obeys does not need to wash except for his feet. Except for his feet. What is he talking about? He's talking about another truth that plays off the second one. The second one was justification to be completely clean. In God's standing, we are right in God's eyes. But let me ask you, as a believer, have you ever stumbled and fell? Have you ever sinned after your salvation? How is that possible? Because we're fully clean. Jesus introduces this whole idea And I'll give you another word, sanctified. Sanctification is a one, is an ongoing process, whereas justification is a once for all situation. And often our confusion in our Christian life is because we don't have in our minds and hearts a clear understanding of those two concepts. So when we stumble and fell, fall in our spiritual life, oftentimes we go, I wonder what God thinks of me now. I wonder if I'm still saved. I, you know, and we start doubting our salvation. And Jesus, in this little vignette with Peter in the upper room around the basin and the towel and some dirty feet, Jesus gives some profound theology and says, no, justification is for life. You put your hope and trust in Jesus, you are saved. You got sin problems still, though. And you need foot washing. You need to be clean in your feet. Your walk has gotten dirty. You need to be sanctified. And that's a repeated process over and over and over to be cleansed. John 17, Jesus again later on in the upper room says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for your sake I consecrate myself so that they may be Sanctified in truth. That isn't a one-time proposition. That is an ongoing proposition. He says, I, I've come and I've interacted with them. I've shared with them. These, my disciples, have been thoroughly clean. We'll use the word justified. Except for the one. He says, but foot washing needs to keep going on. So when we get dirty in our life because of sin has has tarnished the beauty of our relationship and, and the walk with the Lord, God comes along and says, now let's clean you up again. Your, your feet are dirty from your walk. And the word sanctification fits so well there. It's an ongoing process. 
So in this little vignette here, in the upper room, as Jesus is about ready to engage in the Passover, the thing is going on. Jesus pauses, picks up a basin, some water, and a towel, starts moving around his disciples, comes to Peter, and teaches some profound lessons about who he is in our relationship to him. The questions that come out of this is, first of all, are we a disciple like Peter? Are we like Judas? Have we come to the place where we're completely clean? Like Peter? And you can know, certainly know he had his problems. In fact, it would be within hours that Peter was going to go and deny his Lord again and again. You can almost see that Jesus turning to Peter and looking at him when the rooster crowed and going foot washing time again. Foot washing time again. He was right with God. He was clean altogether. But in his decisions in his life, like we, we get dirty. Sin has its impact on us. Or we can be like Judas who walked and talked like all the other disciples but never was cleaned like the other disciples. He knew the right words to say. He knew the right songs to sing. He could rejoice at the healings and the and marvel at the teachings. But whether we end up to be a betrayer or not is one thing. But Jesus said something that was more profound than whether that moment of betrayal was how we hallmark Judas. The real true hallmark of Judas was not in the betrayal. The true hallmark of Judas is that he could be so close to the Savior and miss out on being clean. So we need to live an examined life. Have we humbled ourselves? Have we given our life to Jesus? And we said, Lord, clean us. And we are like Peter. And then, having been justified in our daily walk, do we come back to the Savior time and time again and say, would you clean my feet? Would you clean my feet? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have this great lesson. And the thing that's so marvelous about this 
is the setting where the God of the universe has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God of very God, to live among men. He had lived, He had taught, He had taught, He had preached, He had performed miracles. People wondered at His authority. And what is He doing now as He looks ahead and said, I am about to die. I am about to fulfill my plan. God's Father's plan. I am about to go to the cross and, and redeem mankind. And, and he takes up a basin and he cleans his disciples' feet. What a context for such great theology. We're not talking just about a theological concept. We're talking about reality. question is, where are we? Are we Peter already clean? Are we Peter needing his feet clean? Having been justified, do we need to be sanctified? Or Jesus just moved in our life with the basin of water and cleaned us in our feet as well. And we're good to go questions for us on this Sunday morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for these lessons from the life of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who would take the most strategic of moments when He could have been so self-focused because He has His mission to perform. He had He had spent his life purposefully to come to the point of of redeeming mankind. And what is he doing? Washing the feet. Oh, how you love us. We give thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.